If you've ever uh, uh, ventured out in a business partnership, or maybe you, you know people who, who do that or who have done that, typically when you get a group of people together who are going to be starting a, a business, each person that's involved is bringing something unique to that group. So you don't normally say, hey, let's find five people who all know and do the same thing <laughs> and start this, or else you're going to have you know, some, some real imbalance in, in that group. You're looking for a diverse group of people that are going to bring different uh, uh, things to that partnership. It might be a particular skill set that someone has, um, a talent that they have. It might be experience in, in, a, in a particular field that you're, you're uh, venturing out in. It might be that, that they have uh, certain connections and an extension of relationships that, that other people in that partnership don't have, and so that's valuable to the whole group. And then at least on the startup level, there's typically uh, a buy-in that happens. There's, there's a financial commitment that's made uh, when you are brought into that partnership. And uh, sometimes that financial commitment continues depending on how well that business does or doesn't do. Well, Paul has identified the Philippian church as being partners with him in the gospel. Obviously, this isn't a business partnership. It's not the same thing, but there's some parallels to how a business partnership works and and how being partners in the gospel works. Uh, And you have both Paul and the Philippians, and they have ventured together in being partners in the gospel. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that they are committed to live in the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ themselves. They are committed to knowing Jesus and growing in Jesus and letting Jesus transform their lives as well as they are committed to spreading the good news about Jesus to the rest of the world, to evangelize and to plant churches. So this is the partnership that Paul and the Philippians have together. And throughout this letter, Paul's identified a number of ways that that partnership has played out. I'm not going to go through them again. We've done that several times But ultimately, um, Paul has his gifts and callings that he's bringing and that he's exercising and using, and then the Philippian Christians have theirs. Uh, They're not all the same, but as they bring them together, uh, uh, God is using them for his purposes. As we come to the conclusion of the letter, Paul reminds the Philippians and us that there's something unique about this partnership, something he hasn't necessarily pointed out so much, but he does here. And that is that their partnership, their partnership is not just between them, not just the Philippians and Paul, but there is another partner. There's one who stands behind their partnership, who's ultimately guiding and supplying and supporting and producing everything that's needed in order to make their venture happen. You see, Paul and the Philippians are in partnership together, but ultimately they are in partnership with God. They have joined in to God's mission to and for the world, and they have resources that are available for them that are far greater than they could ever imagine. So from their perspective, from Paul's perspective, he's going to bring that focus now on, hey, we're in partnership for the gospel, but we're doing it with the Lord. And if you've ever been involved in any sort of a business venture, uh, you know that 
Sometimes a new partner comes along and that new partner maybe has really deep pockets. And if you're on the board of that, that business, you're thinking, this is good. This is good. We could always use that. God has, <laughs> well, let's just say there's nothing that God doesn't own. So this partnership with God means that there's a resource available to us that nothing in the world can avail. And that's pretty exciting. And that's what Paul is going to focus in here in this section of Scripture. As we pick up in verse 10, he's, he's going to come back to what motivated the writing of this letter in the first place, and that is the financial support that the Philippians had sent to him. They sent this gift to Paul through the, the hands of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was a brother in the church in Philippi, and he has now brought this gift to Paul. Paul has received it. And here he says in verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, we've talked about this. The, the book of Philippians is, is really a, um, it's very picturesque, the language Paul uses. He, he writes a little bit differently to this church than he does to any of the other ones in the New Testament. And I think it probably has something to do with, with how close in fellowship that they are. But he uses a word phrase here where he says revived your concern and it gives this vibrant picture of something it means to bloom again to flourish anew so you can imagine uh plants plants that normally have beautiful flowers on them so some of you plant plants out in your yard and uh, in the spring and uh, through the summertime you get this this a beautiful uh, bouquet of flowers that come up out of those plants well this is the time of year that what happens well they turn brown and they go dormant and you're not expecting any sort of flowers from them but you are thinking that well next year hopefully in the spring we're going to have another abundance of flowers that come that's the picture that paul gives here he's saying that that's how he views the gift that they have sent to him they have uh, oftentimes blessed him and then they went through a season where they didn't send anything to him and now they've sent something to him again and it's like oh this is this is great when you read it it almost sounds like paul is kind of giving a rebuke to them like hey thanks for the gift finally <laughs> you know almost like it's a bit of, of a complaint but that's not what he's saying uh, actually, it's quite the opposite. Paul says that he's thankful. He's been rejoicing in the Lord greatly ever since he received the gift. And he makes the point to say that he knows they've been concerned about him. That means that they've constantly been thinking about him. So from the Philippians' point of view, they're always thinking about what's going on with Paul. And I wonder if he needs anything. How can we help him? And they've wanted to help him out, but they've lacked the opportunity to do so. And if you, if you think about the history that Paul has had at this point in his life, the last two and a half years before Paul writes this letter were pretty rough. Uh, he had been arrested in Jerusalem, gone back to Jerusalem, and he was arrested and accused of inciting violence there. Then he was taken from Jerusalem to Caesarea, and he spent over a year in Caesarea going through all kinds of pre-trial hearings before different rulers to see whether or not they should keep him in prison or what should we do with this guy now he's been sent to rome shipped off from caesarea 
And along the way, he was shipwrecked. As he's making his way to Rome, shipwrecked, stranded on an island for several months. And now he's finally arrived in, in Rome. So two and a half years was that process of going from Jerusalem to finally landing in Rome. You can imagine then how difficult it would have been to try to get anything to him because you don't know where he's at. I think he's out there floating in the sea somewhere. Well, let's try and find him. That's what they had been dealing with. In the meantime, though, between that time when Paul last received gift from them and he's now received another gift, in that two and a half years of time, Paul says that he did learn a very valuable lesson. Things that he went through taught him a very valuable lesson. Let's look at what he says in verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So Paul's not writing to, writing to them, complaining, hey, how come you didn't send me anything before this? He's actually saying, I'm so blessed by what you've done. I know that you wanted to send. I know you were, you were partners. I know you wanted to support me, but you couldn't. And in the time that you couldn't, there was something so important that I learned. What is it? Contentment. Contentment. Paul says that he has learned to be content. Have you ever looked at a sleeping baby? Little baby, maybe a couple months old, and they're sleeping there. That is the picture of contentment. You look at that baby and say, I want to be like that. One, I'd like to be asleep, and <laughs> I enjoy sleep. Uh, but two, I want to be that content. Nothing in the world is bothering this baby. Now, if you talk to the mother of the baby, she will let you know, well, it's not always like that because the baby's content now. But as soon as that baby wakes up, the contentment is gone for mom and for the baby. You see, we are not, by nature, very content people. Contentment is being able to say, I'm okay in the situation I'm in. I've got everything that I need. And that is not our default condition. That, that, that's not normally where we start from. It's something, Paul says, that we have to learn. We need to learn how to be content. And you know how contentment is learned? One commentator explained it from Paul's life. He said, Paul did not learn this lesson in a day. He didn't take a class on contentment, but throughout a lifetime of ups and downs, the laboratory of his life experience provided continuous opportunities for him to learn the attitude of contentment. So anybody here be able to say, yes, the laboratory of my lifetime experiences have given me opportunity to be content, to learn that. We all have. We all have. Contentment is learned by experiencing a broad spectrum of situations in life. Now, for me, I think of contentment, and I think contentment means that I'm just kind of like everything's going smoothly. But that's not really where we learn our contentment. Our contentment is learned when everything goes smoothly and then goes roughly. And then it gets worse, and then it gets better, and then it gets worse again. And we have to make decisions through all of that of where we're going to settle, how we're going to settle, where we're going to put our faith. Contentment is learned by experiencing a broad spectrum of situations in life and in the midst of those situations, choosing to be satisfied with God's presence 
with us and God's strength given to us no matter what it is that we're going through. That's where contentment is learned. We realize in this situation, whether it's comfortable or uncomfortable, whether it's joyful or painful, that God is with me and God will give me strength to deal with it and I'm going to rest in that and I'm going to be content. Paul explained it in verse 12. He said, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Ultimately, learning to be content isn't about what we do or don't have. It's not about how much or how little. Now, this is something that is really challenging to us. Because I know for myself, I often think of contentment as the more that I have, the more content I can be. But church, I would challenge you to say that sometimes it's the opposite of that. The world we live in is constantly telling us through advertisements, you need this. If, you're, if your life's going to be good, you've got to have this. If it's going to be really good, then you've got to have this. And so we look at those things and we say, I don't have that. My life must not be very good. I don't have that either. I, how can my life be good without a Cadillac? Well, I don't know. Is it really that bad without a Cadillac? So we, we have these battles, and sometimes we're not even aware of it, with contentment. Because we're told that to truly be content, you have to have much. Sometimes we fall for that. But having more money or having more possessions, that doesn't bring us, it's no guarantee to bring contentment. Those things actually tend to bring the opposite, discontentment, greater worry. Because now we have to worry how we're going to keep this thing. How are we going to pay for this thing? How are we going to protect this thing? How are we going to maintain it? All this stuff that we've got and we lose peace and we lose contentment the secret to contentment as paul says here is to recognize the presence of jesus and to draw on the power of jesus in whatever situation we find ourselves in so if we have little that's okay because we have the lord and he's going to provide for whatever our needs are if we have much and we have to deal with the worry that much brings, that's okay because the Lord is with us and he's going to provide for us to know how to deal with that. We can have little or we can have much and we can still be content because we have the Lord. It's Christ Jesus who gives us strength to have peace and joy in whatever state we're in. If we focus on the things or we focus on ourselves, we lose that contentment. If we focus on Jesus, then he gives us the strength no matter our situation. Well, Paul learned that lesson, and, and it took him kind of going through this, this challenge where the church wasn't able to support him. He still learned in that time that God was there, and God always was there to strengthen him. Now he goes on and he talks about another lesson that he's learning through their giving. Paul goes from a lesson in contentment to recognizing the blessings of generosity. Look at verse 14. He says, Yet, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. So Paul, he's writing this from a Roman prison. And 
he is content. He's actually content with his situation of lack. Uh, He lacks finances. It's not like he's getting a paycheck in prison. He lacks resources. He can't bring all his stuff that he has with him. He lacks normal food. I don't know what they feed you in prison in Rome, but I'm sure it wasn't like really high-end stuff. Very tasty. He doesn't have freedom. He lacks freedom. But in that situation, he could say, I'm content because the Lord is here and he's giving me strength. And then he receives this gift from them. And he was thankful for the gift. Not so much because now he has more. He's actually thankful for their gift, not just because of what it's given to him, but because of what it's doing for them. He says that their generosity towards him was both an act of kindness but it was also a way for them to participate in his suffering. How does that work? How, if we are generous to someone in need, are we participating in their need or in their suffering? Well, when we see that someone is in trouble and we give of our resources to alleviate that trouble or help alleviate that trouble, then in essence we have made a sacrifice so that they can have more of what is needed and in one sense we enter into we share in their trouble through our sacrificial giving through our generosity that should sound familiar to us that should remind us of a story of someone else who's done that very thing for us because it is a reflection of the gospel generosity Generous giving, entering into someone else's need to help them, that is a reflection of the gospel because it's exactly what Jesus has done for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he reminded them of this. He said in verse 9 of, of 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now he's not talking about Jesus came down from heaven and gave us all a bunch of money. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about our salvation. He's talking about our adoption. That God looked at us in our need and said, I'm going to rescue them. And he sent his son Jesus who humbled himself, laid his life down, died for us, rose from the grave, and has brought us into fellowship with God when we put our faith in him. That means that the riches of God have now been given graciously to us through Jesus. We've been adopted by God as his sons. We've been brought into his eternal inheritance. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Wow, how generous, how gracious is God. That is what the gospel teaches us. And when we receive that, then that is meant to transform us and we reflect that through our generosity now to the world around us. Now this generosity, it wasn't a rare occurrence in the relationship or the partnership between Paul and the Philippians. This wasn't the first time that he had received from them. He says in verse 15, you Philippians yourselves, you know that in the beginning of the gospel, when he says beginning of the gospel, he's not saying like back in Jesus' day. He's saying in the beginning of the gospel, that is when he took the gospel into Macedonia, where Philippi is, and then from Macedonia on into Greece, 
At that point, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. So there were other little churches that that popped up in that season that Paul was in Macedonia, but only the Philippians partnered with him and said, hey, we're going to support you as you continue to go out. Even in Thessalonica, so even before he left Macedonia, the next town he went to, they sent me, uh, Paul says, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So from its inception, from the very beginning, the church in Philippi partnered with Paul by financially supporting him as he went out from them. Now, it's important to recognize that Paul wasn't going around asking for money. Paul was not only willing to work wherever he went, but he actually did work wherever he went to a new place for any length of time. So if Paul's going to a city, say like Ephesus, and uh, he's going to spend some time there, then he's going to find some work to do so that he can support himself. Nobody has to, 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 to feed him, and he can give the gospel freely. Nobody feels like, ah, we, we need to pay this guy in order to hear the message. That was really important to Paul, that that didn't happen. So he would work. But there were times where Paul didn't make very much, or he wasn't there long enough to really establish a, 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 a job where he can earn some money. And he was moved on, and the church in Philippi would send money to Paul to make sure that his needs were taken care of. They did this before he left Macedonia, when he was in Thessalonica. They did this after he left Macedonia, when he went on to Corinth. And so this was a commitment that the Philippians had that they were very faithful to. So when Paul says these things, he's not like kind of shaking the offering bag before him and trying to get more money. Paul wants them to understand that their generosity produces tremendous blessings. Church, it's important that we understand that generosity produces tremendous blessings, not only to the person who receives the gift, but to the person who gives the gift as well. Look at verse 17. Paul says, not that I seek the gift, Again, he's not saying, I'm writing so that you will send more money. That's not what he's doing. But I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul's going to mention three blessings that come out of generosity. And he identifies the first blessing that arises out of generosity as being the fact that God rewards generosity. God rewards generosity. So often we think about how generosity benefits the recipient of the gift. And that's great. We've, we've heard the stories where may, maybe you can tell a story where you were in a situation, really difficult situation, and out of nowhere, someone blessed you with something and it helped you get through that situation. And you know it really came from the Lord. And, and that, that's, a beautiful, that's a beautiful testimony. But Paul's honing in more on the person who sent that money the person who gave that money. He's saying that the giver is blessed, maybe even more so than the recipient. Because the giver, the one who exercises generosity, they may be subtracting from their their temporal, their earthly bank account, but they're actually adding to their eternal account at the same time. Paul uses funny math. (laughs) He says, when you give, you know that, that comes out of your account 
But he's saying what you don't realize is that when you give, there's another account that it's put into. Here's how Solomon in the Old Testament put it. He said in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17, he said, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. Generosity to the poor is actually a gift to the Lord and God will repay. Now, this is not health and wealth stuff. This is not, you know, Let's look for, let's, let's find the hundredfold blessing type. This is not that. The word clearly says that the Lord rewards generosity. God keeps an account of our generosity. And in his time and in his perfect way, he repays it. And he may not repay it the same way. So let's say, well, I was led of the Lord to offer this person $50. And so, okay, God, 50 bucks, please. That's not how it works. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying God will repay, and he tends to repay in greater abundance than what was given. We don't get to experience uh, God's miraculous provision, though, if we're not willing to be generous. So we all love those stories. We love to hear the story of, of how God worked mightily for somebody. We love to hear the story of the person who gave and then down the road something happened and the Lord returned that and, and, and it was just amazing how the Lord did it. But we don't get to experience those stories unless we are willing to trust God and be generous ourselves. The second blessing that arises out of generosity is that God receives our generosity as an act of worship to him. This is beautiful. In verse 18, Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. So Paul is there in prison. Epaphroditus brings the gifts. He's like, man, this is awesome, guys. Thank you so much. I have more than I need. But then he writes something else. He says, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, here's what's so cool. Paul received the financial gift that they sent. Thankful. But he's also saying that God received it. God received it as an act of worship. What he's describing here is what you would do in the temple if you were bringing your free will offering, your thank offering to God, and you're just saying, thank you, God, you're so good to me. And I bring this, and I lay it on the altar, and as it's burned, the, in, the smoke goes up like incense, and the Lord receives that. It's, it's an act of worship to God. Paul's saying that when they gave to him and he received it, God received it as a beautiful act of worship. When they gave, it was viewed by God as an act of worship to God. And so just like Paul received their gift of joy, God received their act of generosity as joyful worship. Man, when we understand our giving as worship of God, then it frees us to give. If we don't see giving as an act of worship, then we probably shouldn't be giving. See, it's not about the money that we give. It's about the condition of our heart as we give. That's what God is concerned with. Story in Luke chapter 21, short little passage there. Jesus and his disciples have gone into the temple in Jerusalem 
temple courtyards. And in those courtyards, there were uh, offering boxes. So people would bring their financial offering into the courtyards and they would put the money in those those uh, offering containers. And these containers were designed in such a way where they would make noise. <laughs> so uh, if you had a, a, you know, a big offering, you'd come in and take it out and you kind of dump it in there and you'd go boom, boom, boom. So people in the courtyard could hear it. Everybody could hear, there's your offering. Ting, 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 ting. And you'd look and say, wow. Man, he's really giving to the Lord there. Jesus is watching this happen. And a widow comes, and she has one coin, and she drops it in the offering. And Jesus points it out, and he says, that woman right there gave more than all the other ones before her. Because they were giving out of their abundance. She was giving out of her lack. She gave everything that she had to live on to the Lord. In other words, she gave as an act of worship to God, completely trusting God that he was going to take care of her. That's the heart of that God sees that, that generosity as worship. The third blessing in generous giving is that God will always supply the needs of the giver. Verse 19, Paul says, And my God, and he says it this way because he knows it personally, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. God's riches in glory. Is there anything God could ever run out of? (laughs) No. When we're considering an act of generosity, we're thinking about whether or not we should give to this this cause or this person or this situation. Uh, There's there's always a temptation to hold back because of the what-ifs. I know that happens to me. What if this happens and this happens and I just gave this money and, well, what am I going to do then? Maybe I should just hold on to it. Paul's saying that when we give generously, we don't have to worry about the what-ifs because God is our backer. God has the what-ifs covered. So if our heart is to give, we don't have to worry about the what-if. We just give and God will take care of our needs. God will meet our needs. His supply never runs out. And so what Paul is saying about this this partnership in the gospel that he has with the Philippians is that really it's a three-way partnership. It's a partnership with Paul, the Philippians, and with God as the anchor partner. It's God who saves people. It's God who equips people. It's God who sends people. It's God who provides for his people. It's kind of like God's doing it all. And every time we give generously, that's God working through us based on what he has supplied to us. Every time we receive, thankfully, that's God meeting our need by his riches and he stewards those riches through the giver. It's this beautiful, beautiful partnership in which we get to participate in what God wants to do to bless others. And Paul's saying, thank you. This is what we do together. But let's remember who's really behind it. It's the Lord. He's the one that all the praise goes to. He closes in verse 21. 
or starts to close rather, rather quickly here. He says, hey, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. I love that because remember there's some division that's happening in the church. Paul doesn't name names. He doesn't say, hey, greet Sue and leave out Sally. He doesn't do that. He just says, hey, greet everybody. Let's make sure we're all on the same page. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, this would be very encouraging to the Philippians. They're encouraged to hear from Paul, uh, but they're going to be particularly encouraged when Paul says, especially those of Caesar's household. Because what that is, is that's triggering them to understand there's new believers. The gospel is spreading. New people are coming to faith in Christ. And people we'd never expect. In places we never thought we would reach. The household of Caesar are the people who work for Caesar and for the government directly under the most powerful man in the world at that time. And Paul is saying, oh, some of them are coming to know Jesus and they say hi as well. That partnership in the gospel between Paul and the Philippians, the mission and calling that God's given them, that God has given all of us as his people, it was happening. And this would be very encouraging to them. And church, let me assure you, it's happening today as well. I know that we're sitting in a room where so many of our, 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 our friends and, and, and church family members aren't with us right now. Uh, I, I know that we're, we're having to do two services. I know that we're dealing with a pandemic. I know there's all this stuff happening and it feels like just so much loss. Listen, God is still on the throne and he's still working. And remember, he teaches us contentment through these highs and these lows. And right now it's, it's a low. But his presence of, is with us. His power hasn't changed and God is still at work. Paul closes even as he began, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And so, Lord, we thank you for uh, what you've taught us through this book in Philippians. Thank you for what a, a, a generous, gracious, sacrificially giving God that you are. You have laid down your life to rescue us, to redeem us, to save us. And then you partner with us. You call us into your mission to go out and live generously, live sacrificially so that others may come to know you. Lord, we pray that you'll help us just to trust you in that, to rest in your grace, to learn to be content And open our hearts, Lord, to be a generous people. Thank you for what you're doing, God. We trust you. We may not see exactly what's happening. It may not feel like there's great, uh, like this is a season of, of growth or blessing, but we trust you, Lord. Sometimes you prune things back so that greater fruit can come. We trust you, Lord. Thank you, God, for how you're at work. And thank you for including us in that work. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.